Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, with my co-host, Kizzy Joseph, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Zoe Flowers is healing with her hands and words. She began her career in Atlanta, Georgia, where she served as the public awareness training and membership coordinator for the Georgia Coalition Against Domestic Violence. With more than 20 years in the gender-based violence movement, she works nationally and internationally on the issues of domestic and sexual violence. In 2012, she founded Soul Requirements, Inc., a consulting business that merges social justice and holistic healing. Soul Requirements Healing Services utilize meditation, visualization, Reiki, and intuitive coaching to increase awareness, reduce stress, and to promote relaxation and creativity. She co-created Ashes, a play that breathes life into the original stories from her book, From Ashes to Angels Dust, A Journey Through Womanhood, FA2AD, chronicling the experiences of abuse survivors. In 2017, Zoe added filmmaker-turned-television writer to her resume. She wrote, produced, and independently shot a short film. The film was recently turned into an episodic series called Road. Zoe, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm good. I'm well. I'm well. It's already started off as a busy, well, it's 2 o'clock now, so it's been a busy day already. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I'm going to let... um, because Kizzy brought you to my attention, and oh, okay. you know what? Yeah, she saw you at um, mm-hmm. Healing Justice, and one of the oh, things mm-hmm. that you know, like like she and I have been like trying to look at things that are happening about um, around now, and that are affecting people, other than just going like, oh, COVID, wear a mask, you know. And one of the things that interested me was your work on gender-based violence. Um, nationally and internationally on domestic and sexual violence. And we're going to get into that in a little bit, but I'm going to let Kizzy kick it off. So, Okay, sounds good. Okay. So I read in your bio, Zoe, that in 2012 you founded Soul Requirements, uh, which is a consultant business that merges social justice and healing 
And when I came across that, I was so fascinated and curious by the name Soul Requirements. And I'm just wondering, what does that mean to you and what inspired that name? Yeah, so Soul Requirements actually came to me. I used to work, um, I had to work part-time, actually, at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And I would have to drive into the office from Brooklyn every week. And so that is a long drive, and it just gave me plenty of time to think and dream and think about um, the different ideas that I wanted to put out into the world. And Soul Requirements is actually a curriculum um, that was, I like to say, downloaded to me um, on one of those long drives. And so, you know, Soul Requirements is a curriculum that helps people to determine where they are on the soul continuum that is part of my curriculum. And so on the one end of the curriculum, I mean, on one end of the continuum, there is the ego requirements, and then on the other end of the continuum are the soul requirements. And so the curriculum is really set up to help each person track where they are on that continuum. And then through my healing and coaching and all of that, we help uh, folks to get closer to their soul requirements. So that's what that is. And and the soul requirements for me, so for example, soul requirements really bridges my artwork, um, my film, my television, my plays um, with the domestic violence expertise and the holistic coaching. So it's actually a three-pronged organization. Can you tell us more about your journey in discovering and incorporating holistic wellness in your life? Sure. So um, I entered the domestic violence field uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago this year, and um, entered into the work like many semi-young advocates, uh, very idealistic about the work, and it did not take me long to realize that there were just a lot of issues um, in social justice movements just in general. And um, after I was actually fired from that job after two and a half years, the first time I'd ever been fired in my life, <laughs> um, I said, I was done with the movement. And, and basically I was fired because I thought that I could do some of the things that my white colleagues were able to do, um, speaking up for myself, setting boundaries and things like that. Um, and when I did that as a black woman, I was summarily targeted and then exited out the door, which is not uncommon um, for that particular organization and it's certainly not uncommon for the domestic violence movement as a whole. So when I was fired, um, it was six months into me buying my first home, and wow. I just said I was never going to go back into social justice again. There was just no way. <laughs> But I had made, like, really good friends in the work, and one of my friends um, was working at the California Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and she reached out to me, and she said, girl, we got five positions available. Which one do you want? <laughs> so, oh, that's fair. That, <laughs> right. And so I was still living in Atlanta at the time and trying to sell my house. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and take a chance. I'm, I've always been a person that leapt first. I always take leaps of faith. Um, and so I decided to 
moved to California and to get back into the domestic violence work. That was about after I had taken about a year off. And I said, if I'm going to go back into this work, I, I need to do it my way. I need to do it in a way that doesn't harm me. And I had also, in those first two and a half years, I had noticed that people that had been in the work a long time had a lot of ailments, just a lot of unchecked trauma, um, lots of power and control. There's just, there's lots of issues. So I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this, again, my way. And I've always been drawn to the world of religion first, because I didn't have access at that time to wellness, to new age concepts. I just didn't have access, but I was always drawn to faith and church and different religions, and I'd always studied different religions um, from a child, from probably 11. And so, um, so spirituality has always been a huge part of my life. Um, and so I just started really when I was in Atlanta anyway, just delving deeper into spirituality, um, non-traditional, in quotation marks, spirituality. Like I started delving into crystals and just all types of Mm -hmm. things when I was living in Atlanta. And so it really wasn't a decision to incorporate wellness. I've just, it's always been in me. It's kind of what I'm here to do on the planet. And um, it's really just been an unfolding. You know, I've just allowed it to unfold more and more over the years. So when I went to work at the California Partnership, I brought that with me. And I've just been um, incorporating it into my work. It just, it just, you know, again, it's just who I am. Yeah. You know, um, this is Michelle. You know, Zoe, it's interesting that you said that because, you know, I've been involved in social justice, and I have friends who have been involved in social justice, and particularly as black women, and also for other women of color, you go in there, and <laughs> sometimes how amazing it is, you know, that, that you think that we're all for one and one for all, but it isn't, That's and right. there's a lot of those other things, and that you sought out these alternative things for your own well-being. I know I had, it was the first time that um, I had talked to a young black woman and she said she went in this place and when she saw that even though it was a social justice agency that she was the only black person coming in there that when they started to negotiate what she was doing she told them I'm going to need some mental health days because I know the microaggressions I'm going to feel up in here and I'm going to need some time off to take care of me and I thought of that as you were talking about how you got you delved deeper into your spirituality and your, and your crystals and this other way of taking care of you. Yeah, because it was already I was already doing it. I was already having, you know, my friends at my house. We were already engaged in in healing practices, and when things started to go south in my organization, I started, you know, bringing that into work. So I feng shuied my office. I did all of these mm. things to protect myself, and it was so funny because <laughs> one day I looked up and it was like all my coworkers had mirrors over their doors of their offices because that helps to deflect negative energy, right? And so I started doing doing all of those things, coming in on the weekends when the office was closed, saging it, you know, and um, those are all things that I started doing at that, at that organization, again, just to help myself, you know, survive. Here we are supposed to be doing domestic violence work, literally life and death work, 
and so many of us doing that work are, you know, have a violent relationship with the movement. And so, um, so I just started doing those things. I started doing those things, and then I have just brought them to every, you know, organization um, that I've been at. And luckily, um, the last organization that I was with the longest, the Women of Color Network, they just allowed me to they just took the wellness and kind of ran with it and developed grants around it. And so it's, it's just really interesting to see um, how, how it's actually evolved over the years. Yeah. So I know that under soul requirements, I was reading too, that you said you have clients and students from New York to Ecuador. How did you Mm -hmm. reach out like that? Again, it's just been a natural unfolding. I just say yes to, you know, things that make sense. Um, So once I moved to New York City in 2010, uh, around 2011 or so, 2012, I started getting interested in Reiki and um, became a Reiki practitioner. And once I did that, I just kind of started getting offers. I mean, I'm kind of it just kind of happens that way. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to do Reiki now. And so I started doing it free um, with my coworkers and then just through word of mouth. And I started getting invited to different events. I got invited to um, an art and activist event, a week-long event in, um, called Alternate Roots in Asheville, North Carolina. They brought me on as a healer one time. And then the next thing you know, it was like the next year, the next year, and the next year. It just wound up being a standing gig. So it just kind of happened. I just, I didn't, yeah, like I said, I didn't do any marketing. Um, I just let people know I'm doing healing and people are like, okay, well, we trust you. You know, I started out free. Then I started charging like a dollar a minute and huh. then my business just started growing again, all through word of mouth, really. Um, I would say only within the past probably year, I've actually kind of been, marketing more broadly. I like to say I came out of the spiritual closet because I've had clients privately. I've had, you know, I have students that have been with me now for over six years. Um, And they are, some of them are in New Orleans. Some of them were in New York, moved to California, came back to New York. Um, One of my good friends, she wanted to do retreats in Ecuador. She was living in Ecuador. And I said, well, I can help you with that. And I thought it was just going to be administrative. And she was like, great, you can help me run it. (laughs) And so we co-created these retreats, um, soul shifting retreats. And next thing you know, I was on the plane to Ecuador in 2016, um, doing retreats on the summer solstice and the winter solstice. So it's, I've just been presented with opportunities, you know. I think for anyone out there, it's like say yes and then just see what happens. You know, you don't have to chase after things. Um, You just get yourself in the right mindset and you get yourself the right preparation and for the call because the call will come, but you have to be ready. Yeah. What are your uh, holistic healing retreats like? Who are they for? Um, And what is the programming like? Oh, thank you. Okay. So I'm not doing retreats right now. Um, So Dr. G, she's the one that's doing the soul-shifting retreats. Um, They were primarily for women of color. Um, 
although we did have male-identified people show up, we did have non-people of color show up, but I think because, you know, I'm black, she's black, that's just kind of who was attracted to us. Um, and so the work that we were doing with soul shifting was really a shamanic practice that she has been um, apprenticing in for over a decade. And so she is actively rolling out that shamanic practice. Um, they just had a retreat uh, over the summer solstice. So she has continued it since 2016. Um, I had other things come up from 2017. A lot of doors started opening for me, and so I just went and uh, I just decided to do different work. Um, so that particular retreat was based on a shamanic practice. Also, I worked at an organization called the Joyful Heart Foundation, and that's really where I did my first retreat. Those were week-long holistic retreats in Ojai, California, and they were specifically for survivors of sexual and domestic violence that came from shelters within New York City and I mean, within, excuse me, California. And that was a project that was um, that healing retreat model was re it was a project of Georgetown University, and so we were actually being evaluated. They were evaluating our retreat model over a three-year period, um, and so those were the first retreats that I really did, um, and and those were holistic retreats where what one day we focused on nature, right, getting back to nature. And so that was one of the classes that I taught. We went out to um, what's called rope courses. So we did a series of meditations and, and quiet walks in nature. And then we actually did rope courses where we had to, you know, climb trees and jump off, you know, like when you see on television, like we had to climb up this big mm -hmm. tree and then jump down to the ground. And, um, and so that was the work I did with them. And I also did tarot readings with them. And I also did Reiki. So one day it would be nature. One day we would focus on journaling. One day we would focus on art. One day we would focus on movement. And so they brought experts to cover all of those days. And every single day we had 15 to up to 25 people um, that we would be wrapping them in holistic services for that entire week, also incorporating healthy eating. We had a chef. Um, and, again, just being, taking people out of their natural environment, putting them in a beautiful, stress-free environment where all of their needs were met, and just to see, you know, what the result of that kind of healing did. And... Um, and so the, that work, again, is in Traumatology Journal, um, heavily researched, very successful, you know, um, and some of the findings that came out with that were those holistic healing services were actually helping people over a long-term basis more than traditional therapy in a shorter mm -hmm. period of time. One of the things they found was taking people out of their natural environment for a week, making sure all their needs were met, having them heal in community, wrapping them in holistic services. Even three years down the road, people were getting better and better and better and better. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, and the fact that, you know, it was evaluated by Georgetown, but because, you know, often – when people are dealing with trauma and everything, they want to send them through traditional things, which often 
just reinforces the trauma. It doesn't really help you deal with it. You know, well, people would think Georgetown is pretty traditional, and you're coming from a totally not, and I would say European-based. It's very, what you're doing is very spiritual, which is more inclined to be part of indigenous communities, uh, African culture, uh, you know, it's a spirituality. How did you, how did Georgetown receive that? And what made them, you know, was it just like, well, let's see if this works? Or was there really a commitment to seeing how these different techniques, these, this different way of addressing trauma would work? Yeah, so I don't know the whole background, but there definitely was a relationship between Georgetown and the organization that I worked for. And the organization uh-huh. I worked for definitely was, it wasn't, it's not mainstream because it was started by Mariska Hargitay from uh, Law and Order. And ah, okay. um, so it, it kind of was um, her baby. It was a, a, a labor of love. It, it, you know, the retreats started very organically, and folks can go to Joyful Heart's website and <laughs> read all that. But um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't this African – it was not that. Um, do not let mm-hmm. me misrepresent. It was not, you know, an ad- indigenous retreat by any means. <laughs> it was very mm-hmm. – mm-hmm. it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't mainstream and it wasn't indigenous. However, okay. they, it was very much in a Eurocentric – framework. The framework was quite white. Um, (laughs) And and, um, the practitioners, you know, that they sought out, we brought the flavor, right? So, Uh So they were very intentional about the practitioners that they chose. But I was the only black practitioner. Um, Mm -hmm. There was, uh, who's still a really close friend of mine, there's a a Mexican sister that uh, also worked on the retreat and a Salvadorian sister that worked on the retreat. And the three of us are all very, very tight. And then another white sister um, who did the movement, and she and I are also really uh, tight now. Um, And the organization was very European. And so I had you know, I bumped up against a lot of things. You know, there were a lot of conversations mm-hmm. about racism and microaggressions and all these things. And so these things show up, right? Um, uh-huh. Even even though it was phenomenal for the survivors, for me as a black woman, it was challenging, you know, mm-hmm. um, because, again, the approach was, was quite Eurocentric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, and it's funny because often, you know, it goes back to what you were talking about initially, that often, like, they want the flavor, but it's in that, in that construct, which makes it, like, people get things out of it, but those who are doing the work, like you said, you were subjected to a number of microaggressions. It's like, okay, you want to do this, and you want the flavor, but you want me to do it in your way, you know, and... Well, what was that pushback like? How did you, how did you, not let it get to you? Oh, I, I mean, mean, I mean, it, I mean, it, uh-huh. it did get to me. It did get to me. Uh-huh. And but here's the thing: I don't. I I just think that this is the way racism, institutional racism, works. You know, it's like if you, mm. it, you know, um, 
these aren't people that would consider themselves to, to have any – these things just show up. This is just work. This is just the world. And, it's, and I think that, you know, the, the healing community, a lot of things are being addressed now. Um, you know, a lot of folks, whether they come to domestic violence, whether they come to sexual assault, whether they come to healing, we bring our whole selves. And so if you don't have to think about racism, you're not going to think about it. You know, mm-hmm. for, in the same way that, you know, I'm an able-bodied person. It's my choice to think about the issues of people who are differently abled. It's not something I have to think about every day. And so the issues that I was raising, you know, I raise these things not to make anyone wrong. This is just the natural result of living in a racist, sexist, patriarchal, homophobic society. This is, this is uh-huh. just what happens. I was the only black person there. You know, I, I could have been the only black person that some of the people I was working alongside ever even had to talk to or listen to. You know, we're talking about an organization that was started by a movie star. The, boards, uh-huh. the board was made up of movie stars. When they had their galas, Mario Vitelli was giving away cooking lessons in Italy. Like, Cindy Lauper was giving away singing lessons. Snoop Dogg was giving away rapping lessons. So we're talking about, like, very wealthy people. And so, so there are folks that are liberal, right, good people, uh-huh. want to make a change, uh-huh. but, but they're not, they don't have to be confronted with the everyday reality that I live as a dark-skinned black woman in America. So... Uh-huh. So there were things that just weren't on the agenda. <laughs> and so, mm-hmm. um, so for me, I was like, hey, we need to, we, we, can't, we can't have all these folks here, all these survivors from East L.A. and like Compton and not talk about racism. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is a trauma workshop. These are survivors of violence. They might be going back to communities where police brutality is happening. We can't just have them here and, and not talk about that as a part of their mm-hmm. trauma. And so I didn't get pushback, you know, um, mm-hmm. around those things at all. Um, mm-hmm. what I, when I got pushback was when I started talking about the makeup of the team and the, and mm. the structure of the agenda. You know, that's when I started, when I started talking about structural issues. That's when there was pushback. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like blatant pushback, right? It was like white Mm -hmm. people pushback. Like, well, I don't understand what you mean. I'm curious about (laughs) what the issues are here. And, you know, this may be hard for you to hear, but I just don't, you know, it was that kind of pushback, right? Yeah. Uh um, Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Subtle. I want to take a quick break, and then we'll come back, because, you know, you you touched on something that um, I want to follow up on. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. We're talking with Zoe Flowers. You know, one of the things that you talked about, how the organization um, that you were doing this work with, and it was headed by a movie star, um, who, I mean, many people would say, oh, she's very passionate about uh, domestic violence and survivors of rape. She came here to Detroit. You know, we had one of the, we had a backlog of rape kits, and she came in, and there was a lot of bells and whistles around it and everything. And there were people who were brought in. There was a couple people that I know that we share as friends who are really involved in doing the work, and. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know, like, um, the Sasha Center does a lot of work with, with mm, women. Kalima, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kalima yeah. and Nicole Denson, she's done a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so there was that moment when Mariska came in, and there she was with this prosecutor, and they were talking about the rape kits. Yep. And I know she stopped and visited a couple of places, and then she was gone. You know, and their work still goes on, and like you said, as far as dealing with the people who the next day had to go back to these same lives, the work went on, you know, and... well, the work is always going to go on, and, and it's so funny that you mentioned Detroit because I didn't even realize we had that connection, so I was a part of that cohort. I did that. I planned the retreat for uh-huh. those DAs. <laughs> I selected uh-huh. the... the the, the retreat outside of uh, Detroit, so that and I and I planned the Heal the Healers event that we did there um, at the at the Black Museum. Mm-hmm. So um, so I don't know what happened after that. I know that we had a couple of retreats uh, for the folks that were doing that backlog work. Um, I was long gone by the time the um, the video came out, but I think that that is almost. You know, again, not to make anyone wrong, I think that that's, that is the work of allies is to, um, you know, if I think about things that were done well, I think that coming in, you know, shining a light on what's happening, um, bringing the attention that comes with a certain amount of prestige is important. And then I think you do leave. I think that uh, community needs to be the ones that are making these decisions. I think that when outside people try to come in and make decisions for a community, we get into trouble. So I think, it's, I think it's tricky. I think that, you know, we have to know when to step in and when to step out. And um, I talk a lot about how you enter community, how you form relationships with community, and then how you exit community. And one of the things that I've all, that I've taken with me from the retreats that we did at Joyful Heart was uh, doing a responsible goodbye, we call it, and that's mm. something that I've taken into all the retreats afterwards because there's this thing that happens on retreats. It's like you, you, you enter community, so you enter a community very intentional, you know, and that's when the folks are arriving, right? The folks are arriving. Usually we have a meal together. Um, we have some sort of light exercise that happens the night. So this goes back to the question about what my retreats, when I decide to roll them out, will look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did this at Joyful Heart, and we did it with soul-shifting retreats. People come in. We don't want to overload people, particularly in a place like Ecuador that's so visually stunning. 
um, and you have people coming in from the U.S., it's like it takes about a day for your eyes to even and your, and your mind to even adjust that you're here. It's like, am I really here? Is this real? And even in uh-huh. California, uh-huh. Ojai, too. It's so beautiful. So you do something light on the first day, you know, but you want to do something in the evening to, you know, some kind of relaxation. And then the second day you start the work. I mean, the work starts on the first day, but the second day it's like, you, you, you're digging in. Now you're in community, right? And you're doing whatever you're doing for the, the amount of days that you have. And people start to bond. People bond pretty quickly on retreats. And then around that time when folks know that it's going to be time to leave. So soul shifting was a week and Joyful Heart was a week as well. So usually you want to start preparing people for the goodbye and you do that typically the, the day before the actual last day of the retreat. And you want to do that responsibly because you start to see people, that might be the day where people start to argue because people are preparing themselves to go back to whatever they left. And because we're not really trained on how to speak, how to share our feelings, how to be truthful, you know, we, we start to fight or some people withdraw. Uh, some people get really emotional. And so we prepare people. We say, look, this is, this is, this is what you can expect to happen when you go back to community, right? And we lay mm-hmm. all of that out. And then we do some kind of celebration with them. And then the last day is the day that folks go home. And you do some kind of clothing ritual. You eat together. And then you, you send people back home. And so um, that preparing piece, that preparing for the goodbye, the happy goodbye, um, is critical to exiting community. So I don't know if that was done or not because I was long gone by then, but, but um, that's what I've seen work best. You don't just leave community, you know. Mm-hmm. You prepare mm-hmm. them. Can you tell us more about your activism around sexual assault and domestic violence on a daily on a daily basis, um, in terms of the outreach, uh, working with communities, workshops, can you give us more insight on that? Sure. So right from the beginning, I really worked at the state and the national level. So I didn't, I didn't, I haven't done outreach work um, probably since I since 2000 when I first came into the work, and that outreach outreach work. Well, that's not really true. I did it. Well, that's not really true. Um, so a lot of the places that I worked, as I said, I was the only person of color. And so what outreach looked like to me, as I think about it, is I did a lot of things on the weekends. You know, I did a lot of things in community that because I worked for state and national organizations, um, they weren't really doing that. And so... Uh, so that might mean when I lived in Georgia, I was going to a church called Hillside, and so I worked mm-hmm. with some of the church leaders, and we did a domestic violence symposium for community. Or I would go to Agnes Scott College, which was a girls' college in Atlanta, and, and if they were having take-back-the-night events, which are like um, events that usually happen either during Domestic Violence Awareness Month in October or Sexual Assault Awareness Month in April, um, so we might set up a table. You know, I would, I would get all of our pamphlets, all of our flyers and all of that and go to different events and be a presence in community. And so that was a form of outreach. Um, I also did that when I 
went and worked for the California Coalition uh, Against Domestic Violence, we would do a lot of work, again, on the weekends. We would fly down to L.A. and meet with different black leaders, and we formed an African-American domestic violence task force. And so that task force did a lot of different panel discussions in the community. So when I think about outreach, I did that kind of work. Um, but really, my day-to-day work was planning and doing a lot of training. Um, so to be clear, I worked at four domestic violence coalitions, the Georgia Coalition, the California Coalition, the Florida Coalition, and then when I moved to New York, I worked part-time at the Pennsylvania Coalition. And so the role of coalitions is really the work we do is mainly with shelters, um, and we do state-level work, so working on policies, on statewide policies, lobbying on behalf of shelters, uh, training shelters on the things that they need. So I did in Florida, I did a lot of conflict resolution training. So I would go into shelters and I would have advocates do different role plays um, for conflicts that happen within the shelter. I did a lot of substance abuse trainings with shelters so that they wouldn't um, screen out folks for having substance abuse issues. Um, When I was in Georgia, I did police officer trainings, so I actually worked with the police academy, and I would be, um, you know, they would do different role plays about appropriate ways to handle domestic violence situations. So myself and another advocate, we would role play as if one person was the survivor, one person was the person who would do harm, and then the police would, quote, unquote, show up, and we would talk with them, you know, they would do their their procedure, of, you know, and then as a survivor that I would say, this is what would have been more helpful, that, that would have been more helpful. So, so I can't really talk about the day-to-day um, because anybody who works in social justice knows that one day you could be training, the next day you could be hauling furniture. <laughs> and, uh-huh. you, know, you could be rearranging an office. I mean, I have done it all, right? Uh, one day you uh-huh. could be, I don't know, I, I, I've done a lot, you know, um, you know, one of the things lot at you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we share is a connection to Kalima Johnson. And Kalima and yeah. I first met over poetry. I write poetry, perform poetry. Uh, she does, and we did oh. that. She had, and um, she has used poetry as part of things at the Sasha Center at a Take Back the Night um, uh, event. We have done poetry, music, and all that. You wrote, you've written, you've done a play. I often tell people that, you know, it's not just about doing workshops and retreats, that the arts also play a role in this healing. How did you you come to write, I like the idea, to angels, dust, a journey through womanhood. How did you come to write that? What was the inspiration behind that? And how do you see your work as a creative person, a writer, a poet. How do you see that as part of your healing work? Yes, thank you for bringing, thank you for this like very uh, intentional journey (laughs) that we're on (laughs) because that's really the thing that lights me up now. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. so the domestic violence happened I was always, I always thought that I was going to be not a poet, but a writer or or an actor. That was really what I wanted to do. I was on my way to being an actor in my 20s when I 
got into the domestic violence relationship, and that relationship changed the trajectory of my life. Like, I was on my way to moving to New York to do this acting thing. I got into this relationship and had to leave the state for my own protection. And it just so mm-hmm. happened that I had gone to Atlanta for, for something else. And I said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to move to Atlanta. And the police officer said, that's the best thing you can do because we, we can't protect you unless he does something. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved to Atlanta, uh, no friends. I had one cousin that I never met, or two cousins that I never met. Um, and I just started thinking about what was, what had happened and started thinking about like the sexualist, the date rapes and like all the things mm-hmm. that have happened to me and started to kind of write, you know, I used to write here and there. Uh, I had a few articles and some Connecticut papers, but nothing big because I was so insecure about my writing and moved to Atlanta, you know, right before Love Jones, you know, Atlanta had a mm-hmm. pop in poetry scene and so I just started going to poetry readings and I just I just wrote about what I felt and I read it and people felt it and so I kept doing it and um and then I started writing this story about these five girls that were friends and one of the characters just so happened to be in a domestic violence relationship. And so uh, I was like, oh, wow, what is this? Domestic? Like, I didn't know. And so I went to the library to do some research, and there were no books about black women and domestic violence. The only book, well, I should say the only book I found was called Change, Change, Change from Evelyn White, and it was written in 1972. Yeah. And this was, a, this was like 90, I moved to Atlanta in 1994. And so I was like, wow, this is weird. So I, so I just started researching domestic violence. And then that one character started taking over this book of nonfiction. And so then I was like, I, you need to tell the truth. Like I had just heard this voice. I was like, you need to tell the truth. And so I, I told one of my friends, because I, I just like left. I left the state. I didn't tell people why. There was only a few people that knew. And I started tele- calling my friends and telling them what I had gone through, and they were like, that happened to me. Oh, that happened mm-hmm. to me. Oh, I grew up in a house with that. And I was like, wait a minute. How is it that these are friends that I've been friends with for all of these years, and we never shared this information? And so then it was like, oh, that's the book. And the original name of the book was Dirty Laundry, Women of Color Speak Up About Dating and Domestic Violence. That, that was the first iteration of that book. And so I wrote that book. Well, I, was, I, I started to write the draft. I started working at the coalition, and as so many of us do, I put the book on the back burner, and my life became about my job. Mm-hmm. And when I was fired from that job, Spirit was like, you wasn't supposed to be at that job? No way. <laughs> like, you were supposed to be writing this book. And so I had to literally, like, dig the book out, and um, I just – kept writing and writing and writing, and, and then I started interviewing my friends. I would go to support groups. I would interview the women that wanted to talk to me, um, and I just collected all of these women's stories. And then I added, like, what, what's pop culture's role in this? What is religion's role? What is racism's role? And I just compiled this book, and, and then I t- tried to shop it. I couldn't find a publisher, and so I just self-published it myself, and I only sold, maybe I sold 200 copies, um, 
And, you know, at that time, you know, black people just weren't still ready. They weren't ready to talk about domestic Mm -hmm. violence in honest ways. And so um, I just put it away. And then uh, when I decided to focus on, when I moved to New York in 2010 to uh, work on my play, so the play, actually, what I did is I took the stories in the book with my co-writer, uh, Sherry Pullum. I took the stories in the book, and we crafted what I call a choreodrama. And so Ashes, the play, is directly from those interviews that I did with women of color for From Ashes to Angels, Just a Journey Through Womanhood. And I decided to change the title from Dirty Laundry to From Ashes to Angels, That's the Journey Through Womanhood, because as my spirituality grew, I I wanted to kind of distance myself from that title of Dirty Laundry and talk Uh more about, you know, I I was rising, you know, I was was rising, my Mm -hmm. vibration was rising, and so I wanted a title that reflected where I'm going and where I feel like we can go as survivors. You know, we don't have to stay stuck in this trauma. We don't have to stay stuck in the survivor story. We can we can move higher. And so then Ashes, as I said, is the play that came out of that book. And so Ashes I began to write in twenty ten. So there was a long stretch of time where, you know, the book just sat. And once the play started, you know, we've done we've been to Yale, we've been to Smith, we've performed for the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We've had a couple theaters um, lease the play and put it on themselves. Brown University leased the play. And so I was like, you know, I think now people are ready. You know, it's 2010, Uh 2011. Um, I was doing more speaking engagements, 2012. And so then um, that's why I stopped doing the retreats because in 2017, I was like, I'm going to change the title and I'm going to self-publish this book again. And so in January 2017, that's when I started working with the publisher. And then by March, the book was like ready for the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I was like, oh, I can't do these retreats. I need to focus on this book. And so I started doing speaking engagements and all of those things. And so that's how, how that evolved. You know, sometimes we have to wait for society to, you know, catch up to our, our crazy ideas. Because, um, you know, like I said, I was bringing people together in the 90s, talking about crystals, sitting on rooftops, watching the sunrise, you know, you know uh-huh. we've been doing this. And so now uh-huh. it's like, now the world is ready to talk about crystals. And we're like, thank you. Like, we're glad you're here. Like, <laughs> you know, so, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see. You know, it's funny because, you know, as you talk about the book and how people aren't ready for it, you know, um, I want to say yeah. a couple of years ago, I interviewed a woman who was like, I want to say she was in her late 70s, and she wrote a book, and I want to say it was called like Seven Houses, and she talked about the different houses that she had lived in, Okay. going from the point when she was forced to, to marry her rapist, and the abuse that she went through, but how she she kept it inside, and she was... And even at this point, when finally it hit, because her daughter was going through an abusive relationship, and she said, I have to speak up. And she wrote this book, but there was still that stigma about, you know, what are people going to think about me and why, why I did that. And, you know, like she said, people have to evolve and be ready 
to talk about it. And I think that we have come a long way. And I think that as survivors and people who have done that and go on, sometimes you get into things. I know we both also know Kaylin Risker, who, you know, mm. started a, a wonderful, and, and, and I met her talking about lupus, and she talked about the day when she was sitting someplace and her eye socket was broke and how she, like, sort of put on a happy face and went and got a job, you know, because she needed to have this job to keep doing it. And I said, girl, you know, yeah. you have to write it. You have to write about it. And she said, I don't think people were ready then, but just like you were saying, that now people are responding to it and hearing it's not like a victim story. It's a survivor right. story. And she's, wor- oh, by the way, she's working on a memoir. I asked her, when are you writing it? She said, I'm working on it. Like you said, the time came to her when she heard this voice, this is what I need to be putting this together. Right. Have you, have you had other people, like, after they see Ashes to Angels, has it helped them basically, again, come out of the closet as victims oh my gosh. Of, of domestic violence? And I know that you've helped people doing journaling. Have, how, has, how do you encourage people to do this journaling? They don't have to come up with a book, but how important is that to tell our stories, to write down our stories? Oh, it's critical. It's critical. And, you know, I've done lots of workshops over the years about, you know, how to use journaling in particular. But in the last three years or so, you know, I've been asked to do a lot of keynote speeches. And what I've been talking about is how to use the art and spirituality to heal from domestic and sexual violence, very specific. And um, because, you know, I did the book and then I created the play, and then 2017, I got the inspiration to do a short film, which, is, which I shot, and uh-huh. uh, now we've crafted it into an episodic television show, which is currently being pitched to executives. So if anybody wants oh, to invest in my TV show, uh-huh. run me that money. <laughs> no. hey, hey, really? Hey, but, run you that coin, you know? Yes, yes I have. Run me hey, that black money, woman. Yes, I But, um, but in all seriousness, um, what happened was as my spiritual journey became more and more powerful, I put it into the play. So when people come to see Ashes, we are doing ritual on stage. We are saying, I reclaim my power. In the, in the, in the name of Oshun, I reclaim my power. In the name of Yemaya, I reclaim my power. I believe in myself. I love myself. And we start off saying, I want to love myself. I want to like myself. And then by the end of it, we're like, I can love myself. I love yeah. myself. And the play is all, it is poetry, it is vignettes, it is monologues. And so after that show, from the very first show we did, we've had grown men stand up and say, you know what, I'm just realizing I was molested by my babysitter. We've had people come to us at the end of the show backstage. I've never told anybody this, but I think maybe I raped somebody. Like, I think I date raped someone. We've had people Uh come up and say, I've never said this before, I'm in a domestic violence relationship. And so the reason why we've created these powerful spaces is because as a writer, I am dedicated to telling the truth no matter what. You Uh know, um, I always say if you want to know exactly what I'm thinking, you want to know the 
gut truth about what is going on with me, you pick up my book because it is, it is going to, it's, it's just the, the truth. Read my poetry. That is like, it is the truth. And I push my co-writer and my actors, and I've always had directors that pull the truth out of people. That is what acting is about, telling the truth. And we're so truthful. We're so raw. And there are no, there are no good guy, bad guy, quote, unquote, good girl, bad girl in my show. In my show, anybody can get it <laughs> at any uh-huh. moment. Like we have stories about mothers who leave their children, same-sex abuse, um, because ultimately I am in service of justice. And so, mm-hmm. so I don't believe in single issues, right? I'm not going to advocate for domestic violence and not advocate for trans folks. And so my work reflects that. And so I think that because we show it all on stage, it gives people the freedom to tell their truth, to maybe write, start writing things, you know. I did a workshop a couple weeks ago, and I, you know, it was a self-care workshop, and I didn't even know, I wound up having to change my, my speech um, an hour before the training because that night I had let myself go down a Twitter spiral and it was really at the height of the George Floyd protest. And I've been very separate because I do healing work. I do readings and things like that. So I try to keep myself as, as a clear channel as possible. So I try not to watch the news and things like that so that spiritually I can be clean. Um, but I let myself get on Twitter. And I saw what was happening and I was like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't go talk to people about yoga like, I can't do that. And so I recrafted my whole talk. And what, what, one of the things I wound up saying on that call was, y'all need to just quit your jobs. Like, if, if you're feeling powerless at work, how are you going to lead a survivor to liberation? And that's something I've been saying kind of in keynote speeches, you know, but uh-huh. I really went there on this call. And then, lo and behold, I get a call yesterday, one of the people, they're starting their own nonprofit, and they asked me to be on the board. Oh, great. And when I said what I said, people were like, well, I can't leave my job. They're, they're like, we wish we could leave our jobs, because like, I am a job leaver. Like, I am. I am a job. <laughs> I'm, I am a, I'm like, don't call me and tell me about racism at work, because the only thing I'm going to tell you to do is quit and start your own business. That is all I'm going to uh-huh. say, because what I've learned And I train people on racism. I do all those things. But people have to have a willingness to change. They have to have a spiritual or a something has to rise up inside of them for them to change. And so I'm just like, I just can't keep trying to fight people at work. We spend too many hours of the day at work. And and after that first time I was fired, I was like, unless this is Flowers, Inc., I'm not. I'm not going to put myself out there for anybody's organization anymore. Mm-hmm. You know that was a promise I made to myself in 2005 when I decided to go work in California. I was like, I will never be in this position before when I try to go to tell somebody what they need to do with an organization that I do not run that does not have my name on it. All right, all right, all right. I, I love that. The, yeah. I, 
but I went too far. I was because I silenced myself. But now it's like I over the years I realized how to talk about the changes that I that sh- that I felt like should happen in organizations, but not personalize it. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I think okay. sometimes we get so hurt in these organizations because it's it's so personal to us. We're survivors. We believe in it. We have made sacrifices. We have missed, you know, ball games and marriage and, and having children. So many of us have sacrificed so much as activists. And when our organizations don't care about us, don't pay us, don't give us adequate health insurance, it is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I tell people now, keep something for yourself. Build your own. Stop trying to make people create the organization that you want. Create your own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that is, that is, that is, that is amazing. Um, have you read Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Pleasure Activism? I have not. You should. Okay. I haven't read yeah, anything and, in a long time. I haven't read anything and, in a long time. <laughs> and, and, you, and you two should, you two should be friends because it's part of what she's talking about, you know, how often we get involved in doing activism and it's just like painful and how mm-hmm. you have to have that joy and you have to have that pleasure because in order to do yes. it, to do it right, you know. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. I agree. But no, she is. She, she is phenomenal. She's a phenomenal person. Yeah, but I, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's somebody who you What's should know. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown. And the book you is know Pleasure what? Activism. Did she write something else? Yeah, she's got, she's done uh, she's done a whole. Uh, she's oh yeah, this is her. Mhm, mhm. I. So somebody else I was talking to, they were talking about her, and I started researching her, and I was like, I want to be her friend. So I started following her on um, mm-hmm. Twitter. Uh, yeah, I want to mm-hmm. be her friend. So if anybody knows her, I, I want to know her too. <laughs> I can make that happen. <laughs> I can make that happen, you know. And, and yes. I, think, I mean, I'm listening to you, and this will be just like a, a fabulous connection. Um. We're going to take another break, and then I want to talk about how you got into all these things that we know are new, and then talk a little bit about what's going on now. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Zoe, you know, you and I know that crystals aren't new. <laughs> you know, I've looked at the moon and felt the moon speak to me. Um, there's a lot of those things that we do. But, um, you know, 
we all have those those friends who sort of look at you and you say, you know, I'm going to to smudge the house or have some crystals to do that and sort of like give you the side eye, like, yeah, right, you know. Um, don't want to hear about tarot cards. And I know you do Reiki. Kizzy does Reiki. I know Reiki. You know, people go like, oh, what's that? You know, my does that going to help my, my back hurt? You know, and you tell me, well, it's energy work. And, you know, and they sort of look at you like, you know, Okay, what you talking about? How did you first get involved in that? Was it something that you learned as a child? What brought you to that type of spiritual mm-hmm. healing work? Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, so it's funny because I I also do um, astrology. I'm getting into it even more now. And uh, a few years ago, I saw in my chart, it's just basically, you know, my whole chart is like, be magical, set your boundaries, and do art. (laughs) And so Uh I have always been so connected to the world of spirit, but I didn't, you know, again, I didn't have, I didn't have access to the kind of things we have access to now. Like, I don't, so it was Christian or my best friend growing up was Jewish, right? So that was it. It's like Christianity and, like, Judaism. And so mm-hmm. I would um, take the bus to the next town because I grew up in a little tiny suburb, no public transportation. But there was a church bus that, <laughs> that came from the church where my god sister and, like, all her brothers and sisters um, would go to. And so, I, so that bus would come and pick me up every Sunday and I would get on that church bus and I would go over to the next town because I just loved religion from a little kid, right? Because I had access to <laughs> religion. Now I know I, it was the spirit that, you know, and it wasn't the singing or anything like that. It was like there was just something about, like, God and the concepts and the stories and probably appealed to me as a storyteller too. Um, but when I was in my 20s, um, a friend of mine brought me to one of the, well, it was the only metaphysical bookstore um, that I had ever been to. I was in my 20s. Uh, he brought me to that, and that was, like, life-changing. And then mm-hmm. I saw Dr. Wayne Dyer. Mm-hmm. here in Connecticut where I'm quarantining with my mom right now, and I was in my mom's room watching TV, and I was watching PBS because I'm a nerd, and Dr. Wayne Dyer was on there talking about change your thoughts, change your life. And it was 1993. And I had my journal, and I was just, like, writing like crazy. And I just started to devour Dr. Dyer's work, especially because I was going through this domestic violence relationship. You know, I was, like, going through a lot. I was trying to get into the entertainment industry, but I had no access in this, you know, little town that I was from. And um, I just, I was like, what? I can change my, what? Change my thoughts and I can change my life? I'm in. And so I started meditating and, you know, just whatever, you know, CD, right, because back in the day. So um, I started listening to guided meditation CDs. And I and I, I just moved to Atlanta in 1994, and at that time it was like all of the spiritual people from all corners, like me and my friends, we joke about it, but it's like we all descended on Atlanta, and we we found each other, 
at Crystal Blue. Shout out to Crystal Blue in in uh, Little Five Points in Atlanta. And uh, that's when I started working with Crystal. Because in Atlanta, there were so many metaphysical bookstores, and there was poetry. You know, so I would go to mm. poetry readings, and then I would meet my my poetry friends, and they were like. I'm into crystals. I'm like, I'm into crystals, you know. And so it was just this, it was like just this spiritual awakening. And I started doing yoga in like 1995. And I mean, you talk about the only fly in the buttermilk in, the, in yoga back then. Like, there were no black people, at least in my yoga classes in Atlanta. But that was another entry point because it was like yoga introduced me to the chakras. And so, you know, like I said, I would invite people over to my house in like 1995 and we were doing chakra work. And so it just, it just happened. And, and I think, you know, that's why people keep this knowledge from us because it's like once you open the door, that's it. And so... So it was crystals, and it was yoga, and then I started meditating, and I was, uh, I had became a vegetarian in like, I don't know, like like 1992 or something like that. So, um, so it was vegetarianism, and then I became a vegan when I was in Atlanta, literally for just six months, and I was like, this is it, like I need dairy, like this is this is ridiculous, <laughs> and. Um, but it was just these, I just followed my natural inclinations. And, and then it was like, it wasn't the religion that I, that I had been, like, so in love with. It was the spirit. And it was like, you are a spiritual person. You know, but I had to, I had to leave the home, uh, the, the, the state of my birth, because it's so constricting. I felt so constricted in Connecticut. And so, like, once I left and I was, like, nobody's daughter and nobody's, you know, nobody, I didn't know anybody. So I could be whoever. I could be myself. And, and these were the things that I was drawn to. But I still had that deep Christian background. And so there would be years where I would, like, throw away all my crystals. And I was like, this is the devil. <laughs> and I would make sure that I, you know, would go to church every Sunday. And that, but I always had this um, pull. So I went back and forth for many years um, about this, this spiritual practice, this spiritual work. And then I started researching and um, finding out, like, why these practices were taken from us. Then I started researching, um, you know, African spirituality, and I went to school in Georgia, and I'm an African-American studies major, and so then I started learning about, like, African spirituality, and I was like, oh, well, this is why this stuff was taken from us. Oh, and this is okay, and this is okay, and so I began to connect the dots, and um, and so it has, again, just been a gradual Unfolding, So I would say my entry point really was Dr. Wayne Dyer. And then, of course, I came to early Ayanla Van Sant, early, tapping mm-hmm. the power within that was out of print. Mm-hmm. And my friends and I would literally print copies of the book and give it to each other to read because it was out of print. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and then Acts of Faith came out. And so the, the value in the valley, like all of those, Florence Scoville Shin, you know, your word is your wand, like old school metaphysicians from the 30s. Like this is my, my base 
um, Eric Butterworth, Financial Abundance, from a spiritual perspective. So then it was like, oh, wait a minute. So this is why it's hard for people of color to manifest, right? And then the secret. Well, before The Secret, there was a movie starring Marley Matlin called What the Bleep Do You Know? And I want to say it came out around 2000, maybe 2002 or so. I don't know. People can look it up. You can see it on YouTube now for free. But that movie is all about the brain and how the brain works and why it's so hard for us to break habits. So that was another huge explosion, right? So it's like this first explosion came with Dr. Dyer. And then this Second explosion came with what the bleep, because now we're talking about the brain. We're talking about the central nervous system. And because I'm grounded in the chakras, I'm like, this is how this works with the chakras. And so that added a whole nother layer to my learning and my understanding. So then in 2010, I was introduced to my first Yoruba priestess, and I went through ceremony. And... So then it was like full-on African spirituality. So by the time I moved to New York City in October, no, not, that's not true. I left Florida in 2010, and I moved to New York in January of 2011. I had my Yoruba practice. I had my grounding in old-school metaphysicians from the 20s and the 30s. I had Dr. Wayne Dyer. I had what I needed. And so I was able to move into a very nice life in New York City. No drama. Found my apartment in one day. Unheard of. Because I had learned to retrain my brain. And so I was able to bring that to Joyful Heart. I was able to bring that to the Women of Color Network. You know, I was able to now bring that to my students, right? So fast forward, what am I going to do with all this knowledge? Oh, my God, you have all these things. What are you going to do with it? Who cares, right? <laughs> it's like now I'm ready to come out of the spiritual closet. So I get attuned to Reiki. I become a Reiki master after like a year or so. So now I'm attuning other people to Reiki. Now I am literally sending new healers out into the world. And so when they come to me, they're getting that old school information. They're getting the chakra information. They're getting tarot. They're getting it all. Everything that I've accumulated since the 90s. Now I'm putting it all into my students. Um, yeah. Wow. What a journey. <laughs> How yeah. do you use your How do you use your spiritual practice for your personal for my personal life? Yes. Or so, some of us. Uh, um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't really have crystals. I mean, I have crystals around um, for different things, like making crystal grids and things like that, just to keep the energy in my home a certain way, right? So I use crystals in that way, you know? So when people come to my house, they're like, whoa, this house is like, wow, it's peaceful here. I had somebody come to my house, and they were like, Oh, I can't cause any trouble in this house. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no. So, so I, so I create. So my home is a sacred space. My car, I have crystals all over my car. My car is a sacred space. Um, mm -hmm. So my physical spaces, I use my spirituality to protect my spirit, my 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 physical spaces. Um, I work with my ancestors to protect my physical body as I move from day to day. Um, I use my tarot cards 
to guide me monthly, weekly, sometimes daily when I'm really on top of things. Um, yeah, I, uh, especially during this pandemic, this pandemic has made me keep my spiritual hygiene. I have to do spiritual hygiene, meaning keeping myself clear, not watching the news, you know, trying to limit myself on social media, um, again, so I can stay spiritually clean. So those are some of the things I do. I do, you know, I also have students that I meet with every, you know, I have one Monday night, I have a Tuesday night, I have a Wednesday person, and I have a Thursday person. And so I'm in the flow now because I left my job in February so I could build this business. And so so I am in the flow of spirit every single day because i got to be ready for my students. So I'm buying new tarot cards. I'm making YouTube videos. I'm watching other YouTube uh, tarot readers and spiritual people that I like. And so I am, I am in the spirit. That's why when you're like, have you read this book? It's like I have not because I've kind of – I haven't shifted away from activism work because um, I still consult with the organization that I work with for the past eight years. I still consult with them. But the spiritual aspect has really – and the art has really taken over, truly. Um, my, my TV show is all about a spiritual woman living in Brooklyn. And uh, so, yeah, spirit is everything. You know, I wake up with it. I go to bed with it. When I'm really on my game, I meditate in the morning. I used to meditate two hours a day. I don't do that anymore. I wish I could get back to that. (laughs) But, um, yeah, intention setting before bed, like plotting out what I want the next day to look like, Uh, reading books about spirituality specifically, those are some of the things I do. I do a lot, though. I'm, 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 I do a lot. I do a lot of stuff. Working with the moon. I work with the moon. Um, yeah, a lot happening over here. Wow. Uh, well, we're coming towards the end of our time. I do want to ask you, you know, especially with the work that you're doing, and we have this pandemic, and I think that sometimes we know that it is forcing some people to be stuck in bad situations, abusive situations, domestic abuse, and but then it's also can put people on edge to where it might bring out what's not meant to be, you know, a harsh side of them. Yeah. How yeah. do you find, how would you recommend, what would you recommend, especially as far as personal healing that can help in, this, in these times? And what should people be more mindful of? So there's a couple things, right? So the first thing we talked, you know, you, you brought up was the domestic violence. So we know already that domestic violence and homicides have gone through the roof since the start of this pandemic globally. So I'm very concerned. Um, I, I keep saying by March of next year, I feel like we'll have the numbers of what really, right. you know, has, has gone down. We're, now we're going to know for sure. Um, So I'm very concerned about that. Um, I would say for folks, you know, who are stuck with someone who is a harm doer, to please reach out to domestic violence services uh, in your area. You know, we've been been on duty um, since the beginning, those of us working in domestic violence. 
And so the shelters are still open. The call lines are still open. Um, so please, if anyone is in a harmful situation, please, um, you know, you can call the, the national hotline, the domestic violence hotline. You can call the national sexual assault hotline, the RAIN. Um, so that's first. Mm-hmm. Other things that folks can do who are not in dangerous situations, you know, I've been observing a lot of behaviors during this pandemic. And so, you know, I would, I would, I would just ask folks to uh, be curious about why it was so uncomfortable to stay home. Mm-hmm. Not essential workers, not people who are in domestic violence relationships, um, other folks. Get curious about why it was, you know, because people are struggling with, for the first time thinking about things that they've run away from through work, through going to bars, through going to all those things. And so I just would ask you all to just really think about what are you running from? What are those aspects of yourself? What are those stories? What are those traumas that this time has brought up for you? And when is going to be the good time to address it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Those things need okay. to be addressed. Mm-hmm. How can people stay in touch with you, find out about this show that we're all going to be watching? How yes. Do way to, you know, to find your YouTube videos, how do we yes. connect with you? So easily, so easily. So you can find me on the social that I am Zoe Flowers. So easy. My website is IamZoeFlowers.com. My Facebook um, is I am Zoe Flowers. Same with Twitter. Same with Instagram. My YouTube channel, if you want to see my YouTube channel, um, it is The Magic Hours, and it is The Magic, M-A-G-I-C-K, and Hours, H-O-U-R-Z. Mm-hmm. The Magic Hours. And that will um, it, my my Facebook page for my production company, where you'll find out about Road, which is the name of the television show, and Ashes, is Tituba Productions, and Tituba is spelled T-I-T, the number two B-A Productions. But you can also just go to my website. Uh-huh. Um, there's not a ton about my TV show out there as yet, because obviously, because we're pitching it, but we are. Um, Saying it is like Queen Sugar with a Brooklyn Bruja twist, and so it is about a black, you know, woman who comes from a lineage of uh, black witches in her family, and she is working to break a generational curse. Wow. Well, Zoe, we're come to the end of our time now, but I, you know, I'm gonna tell you, you were singing Kizzy's jam. You know, you talked to Richard. What? You talked to Richard. Yeah. And I, really? I am. Yes. So I am yeah. hoping that we can get together and do a second show on those. And I'm going to put it on YouTube to, if you two could, like, sort of put that together. Because, yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is something that we could go on and on about. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, like, everything oh. that you're saying is just <laughs> Oh, it's our time. It's our time. It's our time. So 
So Zoe, I'm gonna leave. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna leave you two with that, and um, you okay. have each other's contact information. But I want to thank you for taking the time. I know that I'll probably circle back to you to talk about Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and pleasure activism is a lot. I mean, it's right there with you talking about self care. And then also, you know, I've got the whole poetry thing going. I mean, I can see us talking many times, but Zoe, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, it's been so great. We want to thank our guest, the magical Zoe Flowers. To learn more about how she's healing with her hands and words at Soul Requirements, her play, Ashes, her book, From Ashes to Angel's Dust, A Journey Through Womanhood, and her upcoming episodic television series called Road, visit her Facebook page, I Am Zoe Flowers, for links. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.